certain many of you have taken a CPR class, haven't you? You've gone through stuff like that. Well, one of the first things that uh, you learn in CPR class is to check for vitals, right? And it's kind of embarrassing running up to a dummy on the floor and checking for vitals, but that's part of the program. But they're asking you to check for breathing, check for a pulse, see if this person is alive or not. Uh, and then once you determine a person's vitals, you move on to the next phase of CPR, right? Yeah. At Sun Valley Church, we talk a lot about the vitals, if you will, of an authentic Christian life. How do we know that we are spiritually alive? I know for certain that many go their entire lives, even in a church, only to find out that they're not spiritually alive, thinking all along that they were. The last thing we want is to be playing church with a bunch of spiritual corpses. And so what do we do here at Sun Valley Church? We do our best to check for spiritual vital signs on regular intervals. We want you to be certain of your faith and to be encouraged in your walk with Christ and to see signs of life as you pursue a relationship with God. The Word of God is full of ways to check your spiritual life. And today's verse, verse 97 of Psalm 119, is one of the best. And so I'm going to talk to you today about this verse. I'm going to ask you to think with me as we unpack what is in here. So let's read first. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Psalm 119. And I'm going to read for you verse 97. Last week we covered the entire stanza. Now we're going to go back and I'm going to pick out things of the stanza that I think are pertinent to you, to us as a church here at Sun Valley. And this is the first. Verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Oh, how I love your law. It is the meditation all the day. My goal today, first of all, is to encourage a genuine affection in your heart and in your life for the Word of God. I want to do that by showing you the benefits that are found herein. And then secondly, I want to confront any possible hidden hypocrisy that grows so well in the soil of our hearts. Uh, without even trying, uh, we are pretty good hypocrites, aren't we? You know, you've heard it said, people don't come to church because it's full of hypocrites. Well, a good response to that is then you'll feel right at home, right? We acknowledge that we have hypocrisy all over our lives, but this particular hypocrisy is is dangerous and we want to root it out if we possibly can. That is thinking that we have signs of spiritual life, thinking that uh, we do in fact love the word, but only to find out that um, we can be involved in church life. We can give regularly. We can serve, you know, sacrificially. We can be involved in every possible way in this church. But because of the distractions of life and the busyness of life, personal time in God's word is one of the first things to go. And so I want to address those two things, to encourage genuine affection in your life and to root out any possible hidden hypocrisy that you may not even know is there. Okay, so let's look at the verse again. It has two sections, first line and second line. It's really simple. Most of the verses in Psalm 119 break down this way. Um, Here's no different. The first, oh, how I love your law. 
what I've titled this is an inexpressible love for God's Word. Theoretically, we Christians love God's Word, right? That's what was supposed to identify us. All throughout human history, the Word of God has held an important place in the lives of the people of God. It's been the center of spiritual life. Think about the Old Testament times even, as far back as you can remember. Was not the Word of God significant to them, important to them? Yeah, it was central to their lives, every Jewish family. All they ever did was teach their children the Word of God, just, you know, Deuteronomy 6. This is what they did. And then in Jesus' life and ministry, he grew up in a Jewish home. The Word of God was important to Jesus and his parents and his siblings. They were taught it from the youngest of ages. Jesus knew the Word because his parents were faithful in teaching the Word. So Jesus' ministry really was grounded on his knowledge of the Word of God as he had it. And then in forming the church in the first century, wasn't the Word of God central to how the church began? Yeah. And then in the middle centuries, we, we had all sorts of um, history events that, that confirmed what I'm saying. The, the scriptures, God's Word has always been central to the lives of His people. So here the psalmist says, Oh, how I love your law. It seems that he's grasping for words to, uh, to uh, define his love for the law, but he can't come up with anything. So he just says, oh, how I love your law. I really, really love your law. Because there's no words that can define his particular affection for the word of God. As we begin to think about the word of God as it relates to the vital signs of our spiritual life, we must consider this basic sign. Do we love God's word? Speaking of the blessed man, we just heard read in Psalm chapter 1, verse 2, it says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord. The man who follows Christ, the man who walks with God, the man who is growing and is blessed in his spiritual life is the one who delights in the Word of God. How does he delight? He meditates on it day and night, verse 1 says. Or verse 2 says, chapter 1. God's people have a great love for his word, and sometimes that's really difficult to express. The author just says, oh, how I love God's word. So why do people love God's word? There are many reasons. I'm going to give you a few this morning. All right? We love God's word, first of all, because of its author. We love God's word because of its author. What do you do when you receive an email or a note from a close friend, a loved one, even. You cherish it, right? You know, I remember when Sherry and I were dating, we were, you know, extremely infatuated with one another. And we would, back then, there wasn't email. There was this thing, weird thing called mail. Uh, and we wrote letters to one another every day. And I would wait for those letters to show up. And I would read them and reread them and read them between the lines. And so on and so forth, and she would do the same. We cherished each other's word. And this is the case with anyone who loves another. They cherish what that person has. Aristotle said that we love anything that comes from a person loved. The word of God is a love letter from God to us. Do we love it, Christian? As much as we can decipher the work of God in creation, we can much more decipher it in his word 
when you observe the, the many different beautiful and wonderful things that we marvel at in creation and the intricacy of it, what are we doing? We're subconsciously acknowledging the work of God as a creator. Even if we don't say that, our awe is a reflection of the author of creation. And in God's word, we have a clear revelation of his character. We see the stamp of God all over his word. No matter what page we look at, we see evidence of his love, his grace, his goodness, his mercy. In all 66 books, we love God's word because of its author. Secondly, we love God's word because of its contents. The contents, of course, reflect the character of the author. In this same way that you love things about your loved ones, believers love the contents of God's word because it's a reflection of his nature. The contents of the Bible reveal to us everything we need to know about God. Everything we've learned from God is contained here. What have you learned about God that you haven't learned from Scripture? <laughs> Zero. So what does this word contain? We love it because of its contents. What's it contain? First of all, truth. Truth. The contents of Scripture contain truth. This is said in many places, but one is Psalm 19. Not 119, but 19, verse 9. The rules of the Lord, there's that synonym for the Word of God, the rules of the Lord are true. They're true. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul called the gospel the word of truth. Jesus in John 17 said, sanctify them in his prayer to his Father. Speaking about us, he said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The word of God is true. It contains truth. We're not talking about relative truth here, if there is such a thing, where people might say, well, that's true for you, but not true for me. What does that mean? We're talking about absolute truth, something that is universally true, that spans generations, geography, time. If it was true for Abraham in Mesopotamia, it's true for us in Yakima today. That's the truth we're talking about. You remember the Apostle Peter spent three years with Jesus in his ministry here. He said that the Word of God is more substantial than his own experiences with Jesus during those three years. In First Peter, or Second Peter rather, Peter was retelling the story of being on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. That's when Jesus revealed his heavenly glory, his divine glory to three people. Peter was one of those three. One of the most profound experiences in Peter's life with Jesus that was, that was uh, shaping of his entire ministry. He said the word of God was more important than that experience. He said it this way in 2 Peter 1.19. Right after he told the story of the Mount of Transfiguration, he said, and we have the prophetic word more fully, fully confirmed. More important is the word of God that we have in our hands than my experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is important. This is very important. The word of God is more certain than all the experiences of Peter and the other apostles throughout Jesus' ministry. What this means, among other things, is that God's word is more important than your experience and mine. This is key in this day and age when experience is everything. Paul even said to the Galatian believers in Galatians chapter 1 that even if an angel from heaven came and spoke to them, what an experience that might be. Have you had an angel speak to you? 
Well, the word trumps that evidently, according to Paul. He said, even if an angel from heaven comes and speaks to you a different word than what was delivered to you, it's nothing. It's worthless. So, we, we may strive and long for some kind of experience, no matter what experience it is, no matter high, how high that experience is, it's nothing in comparison to the Word. It does not negate the Word. I would say, hello, Joseph Smith. Even if an angel comes, Moroni has nothing to add to the Word. Nothing you could experience will ever trump God's revelation in this book. So those who say, I'll never believe unless God does some kind of miracle so that I can see it myself, are missing the point of the Bible. In John chapter 6, verse 30, you remember the story. Unbelieving Jews asked Jesus for a sign so they could believe him. They said, well, just show us a sign. Amazingly, the people who were asking for a sign were just fed in a group of 20,000 people, five loaves of bread and two fish. That same group of people knew that Jesus walked across the top of the Sea of Galilee from the eastern bank to Capernaum. Yeah, we'd like to show you, have a sign, you show us a sign. Hello? Is there anything that will, that will prove to a skeptic that these things are true? I don't think so. Not even their own experience. The Word of God, the reason we love the Word of God is because of its contents. Not just its author, but its contents. And its contents are truth. Secondly, profound truth. It's not just general truth, it's specific truth. Truth that, truth that changes people, changes destinies. Profound truth. Listen to these truths in 1 Timothy 3.16. Great indeed, Paul says... You know something good's coming when he says that. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, speaking of Jesus Christ, was manifest in the flesh. Just think on that profound truth for a second. God became man. He became one of us. The creator of the universe walked around with skin and bones. That's a profound truth. And every reason that attached to that reality is profound truth. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. When was Jesus vindicated in the Spirit? At his baptism. The Father said, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then the Spirit lit on his shoulder in the form of a dove. He was seen by angels before his incarnation, during his incarnation, and after his incarnation. Angels were in participation with all points of Jesus' existence. Proclaimed, on the, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. These are profound truths that change people. The, the Word of God contains truth and profound truth. Think about all the profound truth that you take for granted as a Christian, starting with creation. <laughs> How profound is that? Something out of nothing? No, that's crazy. Separation from God because of sin, horrible. God's love for sinners, unbelievable. Forgiveness of sin, that's unheard of. All these things are profound truths found in the scriptures, which is why we love the scriptures. Their contents are truth, profound truth, and flowing out of profound truth is this thing that we love called goodness. 
We love goodness. We're drawn to goodness. The contents of Scripture are good. We, we enjoy this goodness. There, there are two things particularly that are good in Scripture that are revealed nowhere else than in Scripture. First is this, reconciliation with God. Nowhere else can you find that truth other than Scripture. God has reconciled sinful, rebellious man to himself. So we think about this. Can an unreconciled sinner be interested in God's word where he reads of his own condemnation on every page? I know that there are sinners who are interested in Scripture uh, as literature, but those who have not yet had forgiveness of sin do not love Scripture because it identifies their condemnation. There's no way that an unsaved, unregenerate person can love God's Word. Only those who love God's Word are regenerate. You know, we were created for friendship with God, but our personal rebellion against Him has caused a rift between us and our Creator, and this rift creates problems. Right? And so, what is the solution to this rift? Um, how can we regain what was lost in the Garden of Eden? How can, be, how can we be reunited with our Creator in, in a relationship sense? Well, this is what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.19. Paul was addressing this very issue. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. That's how it happens. God became man. Jesus is the mediator between God and man. The reason he can mediate this, what seems to be an infinite separation between us and our creator is the fact that he is creator and a human being as us. So he can represent God because he is God. He can represent us because he is man, which is why he had to be God-man. We needed a, a representative on both sides. We needed a mediator. Who could do the work? Reconciliation with God. The next good thing that we only find in Scripture besides reconciliation with God is eternal salvation. And of course, this flows out of reconciliation, doesn't it? Yeah. If we indeed possess a soul that will not expire, we are naturally drawn to whatever will offer a happy eternity and we'll recoil and resist anything that would result in eternal sadness. And so we're drawn to this idea of eternal salvation, which is revealed to us in Scripture. 2 Timothy 1.10, and, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. God has brought a good eternity possible through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We love the Word of God because of its author. We love the Word of God because of its content of truth, profound truth, and goodness. Thirdly, we love the Word of God because of its effects. Of its effects. What does the Word of God do for us? You know, this is an important question to us pragmatic 21st century folk, right? 
What's it going to do for me? You'll never buy anything unless you know the answer to that question, right? If you buy a new car, you get girls. It's obvious, right? <laughs> it says so on the ads. You, you ladies buy makeup because it'll attract men. I mean, this is how it works. We, we have to be sold the goods. Well, what are the effects of God's word? What's it offering? First is this, a knowledge of God. How about that? A knowledge of your creator. Not just a knowledge of, yeah, he exists. No, an intimate, personal knowledge of God. That should sell you in and of itself. The word of God, we love the word of God because it increases our knowledge of God. If there's one thing that we must learn during this lifetime, it is who God is. To die as the world's leading authority on the stock market, but with no knowledge of God is an eternal tragedy. To, to die as the world's leading authority on business, family, the outdoors, cars, history, whatever, but with no knowledge of God is an unbelievable eternal tragedy. When Moses first encountered God, he wanted to know who he was. And how did he ask him this? What's your name? When you want to get to know someone, that's one of your first questions, right? Hi, I'm, what's yours? That's what you ask, and this is what Moses did. Who are you? What is your name? And then once he found out his name, what was the next question? Would you please show me your glory? Show me what you're all about? This was Moses' approach. He wanted to know God. That's a good question for any thinking person. Who are you? Hosea 6.3, the prophet knew that what the people of God needed was God. And so he said this, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. This is what we need, Israel. This is what we need, Sun Valley Church, to know God. This is what Paul knew that he needed. You know, interestingly, Paul was raised in a spiritual home. He was raised a religious man. He went to the best religious schools. He knew God, and yet he didn't know God. Listen to what he says in Philippians 3. Indeed, Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. My Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul's driving force in his life was to know God. A result of that was sharing the gospel, was preaching, was planting churches. But his, the driving force in Paul's life was the desire to know God. So if, in fact, the word of God reveals God to us and increases our knowledge of God, it should create somewhat of a love for it in the life of a Christian. Next, we love God's word because of its effects. First, it increases knowledge of God. Second, it converts the soul. Let me tell you something. Every soul that was ever created needed converting. Every soul ever created needs God, needs conversion. 
We're born unconverted. We're born spiritually dead. But we see in Scripture that the Word of God invigorates the soul, revives the soul, converts the soul. Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect. What's it do? It revives the soul. It converts the soul. It takes it from death to life. How does the Bible, this book, convert the soul? How can it get you from being dead to alive? This book. Well, it reveals sin. Right? You don't have to read too long before you're looking in the mirror of self and seeing sin, right? Yeah, it reveals the holiness of God. That alone reveals sin. <laughs> when, you come, when you encounter God, it humbles us. It reveals our need for him. This is what the Bible does when you read it, when you spend time in it. Jeremiah 23, 29, the, uh, the uh, prophet said this, or God said this through the prophet, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? You think you have that neighbor who's got a hard heart, or you got that uncle who's got a hard heart, who's, or that kid who's got a hard heart. Harder than the hammer of God? Probably not. You see, the Bible offers, authors of, offers a Savior. It reveals sin so that we can see our need of a Savior. It reveals the Savior himself. We love God's word because of, of its effects. It converts the soul. It also heals broken people. You may have personal experience in this matter. And you, here's the crazy part. You may not know you're broken. But we're born broken. We continue breaking until the Spirit of God comes and does his work in us and uses the Word of God to do that. The Word of God is a healing balm to broken people. It strengthens us, encourages us, brings hope to us, reminds us of God's love to us in Christ. It builds up faith, Acts chapter 20, verse 32. And now I commend to you, God, and to the word of his grace, that is the word of God, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. This is what the word of God does, friends. Do you love it? Do you love the word of God? It brings the work of sanctification to completion. This is what the Word of God does. If you don't spend time in the Word, that sanctification process will take much longer than necessary. The Word of God is the tool God uses by the Spirit of God to transform the people of God. Your transformation is in proportion to the amount of Word of God that you take in. So it really isn't a mystery why some people never grow spiritually. It would be similar to seeing why some people never grow physically if they didn't eat. It brings the work of sanctification to its completion. 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk. What is that? That's the word of God. That by it you may grow into salvation. The word of God brings life. It brings 
sanctification, that is spiritual growth. And then it weans us from the world. Do you need weaning? Are you still connected to the world's supply? The word of God weans us from that. It takes us from a dependency on what the world has to offer and moves us Christward. Do you love the word of God? So the first half of the verse tells us that an important vital sign of the Christian life is love for the word. What's the second half of verse 97 say? It says, it is my meditation all the day. The word of God is my meditation all the day. We've seen why it's so important. We've seen why we should love it. And if we do, this ought to be the result. A definite result of love for God's word is meditation. So the habit of loving God's word and that of holy meditation on it will spread its influence over our entire life and character. Every aspect of your life will be affected if you love God's word and meditate on it. It will fill your heart and your mind with overflowing things from above. This is what Paul told the, the, the Colossian believers in Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. If you have indeed been raised with Christ, if you truly have the Spirit of God with you or in you, if you truly are saved, think on things that are above. This is what Paul told the Colossians. Meditate on godly, heavenly things. And where does that begin? How do we get to that place where we are thinking on the things of God, where we are meditating on the Scriptures? How does it happen? Let's, let's start at the beginning. First of all, it begins with regeneration. A love for God's Word is the fruit of regeneration. If you, do, if you do not love God's Word, if you have no interest in the Word of God, then there is a good possibility you have not been regenerated. You're still dead in your sins. You're still spiritually dead if you have no interest in the Word of God. So it must begin here. If you have been regenerated, the Holy Spirit will, will develop in you a love for two things. A love for God's people and a love for God's word. This is about, this sermon is about Psalm chapter 119 verse 97. That highlights a love for God's word. But the entire book of 1 John is about the importance of loving God's people. That's another sermon series. So, do you love God's word? When the Holy Spirit regenerates a person, he plants within that person a thirst for God's word. Do you have that thirst? Do you have an interest in God's word? Just like we have a natural interest in light. You know that, right? We, we desire light. We, we don't like darkness. In the same way, we have a spiritual interest in spiritual life. Spiritual light, rather, found in God's word. I have never found anybody that likes stumbling around in a dark room stubbing their toes in the furniture. What do we do when we enter a dark room? What's the first thing you do? Look for a switch, right? You're doing this kind of thing. That's what happens when you become a Christian. When the Holy Spirit regenerates your soul, he gives you a desire to look for the light switch. 
you're, you're not comfortable in darkness anymore, and so you look for ways to lighten the room. And that light switch is the Word of God. You turn it on, and things lighten up. This is good and natural for the believer. It says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit of God in you, things of God have no interest to you. The Word of God is meaningless to you. And this loves, this results, if when you become a converted believer, an authentic, genuine convert, the Holy Spirit plants a love for God's Word. That's where it begins. And this love for God's Word results in meditation on the Word. You, you begin to realize the things I've been saying about the benefits of the Word of God in your life. And so you begin to pour over the Word of God and saturate yourself in the Word of God. Love for God's Word results in meditation. I don't think this is complicated logic. We think a lot about what we love, right? To say you love something and not do that is a contradiction. I love collecting stamps. I just don't have any. What? No, that's, that's stupid. I love God, I just don't like his word. What? No, that's stupid. So what do you think about often? What do you spend time thinking about? Sports? Stamps? Your job? Your spouse? Video games? Money? What do, you, what do you spend time thinking about? That's what you love. All of us do this. So whatever takes up your thought is really what you love. As Christians, true Christians, we have the Spirit of God living within us. And He creates a desire for His Word. We'll be thinking about God, thinking about His Word, because the Holy Spirit is in here making sure it happens. Meditation, by the way, is not some weird New Age practice of emptying your mind and sitting cross-legged on a, you know, smoke-filled room. No, it's simply thinking on biblical truth. It's reading the Bible. It's rereading the Bible. It's reading a commentary on the Bible for deeper meditation. It's praying over the text. It's talking about the text. It's writing questions and sermon notes about the text. It's discussing the truth with others. This is all forms of biblical meditation. When we were uh, in the book of Hebrews sermon series, I did two or three sermons on meditation uh, because it came about, I think, in chapter 2. And I've made some copies of those sermons if you're interested on a more detailed description of what biblical or Christian meditation looks like. They're in the lobby. I've got copies of two of those sermons back there if you'd like. Um, but meditation, friends, is a result of a love for God's Word. And a love for God's Word is a result of regeneration. Next is meditation results in a deeper love for God's Word. He said it sounds just the exact opposite. It is. It's reciprocal. If, if you love God's Word, you'll meditate on it. If you meditate on it, you'll love God's Word more. So if you meditate on something, you grow to love it. Thomas Manton said, the reason there is so much 
preaching and so little practice is the lack of meditation. Charles Spurgeon said, familiarity with the word of God breeds affection and affection seeks greater familiarity. It's reciprocal. So the truth, do the truths presented from this pulpit ever cross your mind once you leave this room? If not, how do you expect to apply the truths preached? How often do you actually take what you hear and think about it when you leave, after you leave the room? In the same, is the same in your Bible reading. If you never review what you have read in the morning, how do you expect to grasp and apply what you've read? Meditation is critical to spiritual growth and vitality. It's a sign of life. So take what you read and review it throughout the day. Take what you hear preached and review it throughout the week. This is one of the great benefits of participating in a small group, by the way. Open enrollment month is over, but you can still join a small group. Our small groups are always open. You just, we just discourage the switching of small groups. We want you to be committed to one another in your small groups. But in the small groups, what happens? You, you know, you're not talking about the weather. You're meditating on the scriptures that were preached from the Sunday morning sermon. That's what your small group is primarily about. <laughs> And remember the reason the blessed man was blessed in Psalm 1? He delighted in God's word day and night. That's why he was blessed. So the more you meditate on God's word, the less influence the world will have on you. The more you meditate on God's word, the more prepared you'll be to face the daily challenges of life. The more you meditate on God's word, the more your affections will be stirred towards Christ. The more you meditate on God's word, the more you will be in communion with God, your creator. Friends, do you love God's word? If so, do you meditate on it? Do you spend time in it? If you love it, you will. In studying for this sermon, I came across this quote by Thomas Manton. I'm going to read it and then explain it to you. And then pray. Painted fire needs no fuel. When he said that, I went, that's true. Because painted fire isn't real fire. It's fake. Painted fire needs no fuel. A fake Christian doesn't need the word. And you can keep on faking. And who's to know the better? But a real Christian, a genuine Christian, a Christian that's got vital signs will love God's word and will meditate on it. Friends, we can't live any other way. <laughs> I, hope you don't, I hope you haven't been fooled into thinking you can. We're going to serve you the Lord's Supper at this point. And one of the great benefits of the supper is an opportunity to examine your life. And so I'm going to call you to examine this particular area of your life. Do you sufficiently love the word? And you can answer that question simply by looking at your life. 
do you ever pick it up? I mean, I have no stamps in the stamp collection. I really don't love stamps. Do you really love the Word of God? Are you just saturating your life and your soul? So, after that examination, and it shouldn't take long, I'd like you just to do business with God. If, if the evidence proves that you really don't know Him, then come pleading to the throne of grace, asking that He would convert your soul, that He would give you spiritual life so that you would love God and His Word, that you really genuinely would love His people, that you would have your sins forgiven that you would have a certain hope of eternity. And then, Christian friend, if, if you've examined and you've seen a want or a lack in this area, confess it to God on your way forward, trusting that he is a friend of sinners that is quick to forgive, that is quick to renew, just like the prodigal son's dad who ran to him. As soon as the son showed any signs of life, the dad ran to him and embraced him and kissed him and threw a party for him. That's what you can expect, wandering Christian. That's what God does for those he loves. So take, do business with God this morning as we serve you. We're going to serve you up front again. If you're new, what that means is simply we come forward in the aisle and we serve you personally and then you go back to your seat and you can partake at any time you want. But we want to make sure that those who come forward actually know God. Don't compound the problem by coming forward if you don't know God. That calluses the heart. Come forward if you do know God. But if you do know God, friends, listen closely. If you do know God and just have been living away from him, you more than anybody needs to come forward and be renewed and encouraged and fed by the Spirit through the elements. It's a mysterious thing we're about to do. But God meets us here. Elders, if you'll come forward, I'm going to pray.